Thank you, Richard. Thankfully, as all good consultants will know, you surround yourself with junior doctors and nurses who are far more experienced, capable than you will ever be, and all is sweet and well. So uh, thank you for coming out and, and braving the sunshine uh, to worship the Lord and to hear from his word. This is the kind of final season in our uh, season two of our four-part series, looking at the book uh, of first, or the books of First and Second Samuel. It was one book originally. And this would make a great mini-series for a Netflix or an Amazon Prime series. Uh, I think there was a, t a film attempt in 1985 with Richard Gere, which completely bombed. And one of the reasons it bombed was quite simply that it couldn't bring together all the strands of the biblical narrative in a way that was coherent and exciting. Um, that was one of many problems with it. But in this final section uh, of 1 Samuel, the author has kind of three strands to bring together. First, there's the issue of Saul. We learned about Saul and his stranger things last week, going to this medium, this witch of Endor, and how he has really lost it as regards his faith in God. He silenced the voice of God in his life. He slaughtered God's priests, and he disobeyed the Lord's prophets. That's one strand. Second strand is David also is in a little bit of difficulty. He's found himself in really precarious waters with the Philistines, the long-term enemies of Israel. And it's because of the fear of man that David, fearing Saul and his continual attempts in his life, flees Israel to go to live and to become a mercenary with, with God's enemy, setting up shop in the Philistine town of Ziklag. And David is going to find himself at some stage outed as being loyal to Saul and Israel and not the Philistines. So the author needs to resolve that tension. But then, and this is the most important thing actually, and the most thing that I suppose is, can be a little bit nebulous or abstract is, how does David develop as a character? And how is any of this random stuff that happens to him fitting into God's story, fitting into the story of the true here with the Lord, whose promises and character and covenant are actually doing something, propelling the people of God so that we, two and a half thousand years later, three thousand years later, can read this and gain instruction for ourselves as Christians? How does any of this make any sense? What is the Lord trying to tell us? So let's start with the first thread, which is the inevitable descent of Saul into a completely godless existence and a godless death. Let's read chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-Sham. 
But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So this is not a pretty chapter, and this is why I started with this, so that we could end up with something a little more hopeful towards the end of the sermon. But the first verse of chapter 31 kind of says it all. There's not really much more embellishment to follow. The newspaper headline would read, Philistines slay fleeing Israelites at Gilboa. That's really all that this chapter is about. Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, David's great friend, are killed, and their decapitated bodies, like some kind of grotesque artwork, are displayed on the wall of this fortress town of Beth Sham, a town that sat at the junction of the Jordan River Valley and Jezreel Valleys, very strategic, very public, very important, so that the Philistines could announce their gospel, their good news, that they had won victory over Yahweh and his king. While no doubt fighting bravely, the Israelites didn't stand a chance against these Philistines. They were better armored, they had better military experience, um, they had iron, they had chariots. There was no way that Israel on its own was going to defeat the Philistines. And the only kind of mild bit of interest and hope for uh, a worshiper of God is, is the kind of two somewhat futile displays of loyalty in this chapter towards not the man Saul himself, but Saul, the anointed king. We've got this picture of his armor bearer. Now, Saul's armor bearer was no coward. He didn't fear battle and he didn't fear death. But when Saul asked him to kill him, to touch the Lord's anointed, he feared greatly and he wouldn't do it. So the mortally wounded Saul does it himself and his armor bearer joins him in death. That's one kind of bit of misplaced loyalty and futility, but demonstrates something of the respect that maybe the average Israelite had for the Lord's anointed, even if Saul had completely rejected God's purpose for himself. We get this other picture that these valiant men of Jabesh Gilead. Now, Saul did have a high point as an anointed king. This was in chapter 11. This was kind of his first major act where these town, this town, Jabesh Gilead, was about to meet a very gory, mutilated end through a group called the Ammonites. And Saul mobilizes Israel in obedience to God to deliver these people. He gives the victory and claims that this is from God, a real spiritual highlight, but yet it was really only the outward working of, of, of an obedience which, which Saul had. Um, it wasn't really a heart change. But the men of Jabesh Gilead remember how Saul had delivered them, and perhaps they saw the cruel irony in Saul, his mutilated, rotting corpse, exposed to shame, and they took the bold steps to remove it and give him some sort of burial. What a sad end to God's first anointed king. This guy Saul had been head and shoulders above his fellow Israelites, but he loses his head. He is taken apart piece by piece, his armor, his body separated and moved as a trophy throughout the land of Philistia. The Philistines even have to make sure that their deaf and dumb idols get in on the news because it was they that had fallen before God's ark Yet now it is Yahweh and his name who've been defeated and who are displayed powerless, impotent, and dead. And as we might say in evangelical circles, Saul's life was a pretty bad witness for the Lord. In fact, it was a stinking mess of a witness to the power and character of God. The very person who had it all, who was chosen 
by the people, who was anointed by Samuel, who was given every opportunity, completely blows it. But yet, it was a young Israelite shepherd lad who took the head and the sword of a Philistine champion through whom God's purposes were going to be fulfilled. So despite this sad end to Saul, what is even worse is how God's character is impugned. And this man who rejected God's purposes for himself time and time again meets a very, very sorry, tragic suicide, not to God's glory, not to the glory of Israel or who God was. So that's the end of the first thread tied up. But there's a second thread, a more hopeful thread, but a thread of uncertainty, and this is David's story. We're going to go back to chapter 29, uh, back in time to whenever David is with the Philistines, and we're going to read the chapter again in its entirety. Chapter 29. Now, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on on the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now, if you were here last week with Stevie, uh, Stevie mentioned how David, because of his fear of Saul, his fear of man, defected, if you like, or seemed to defect the Philistines. He pretended to be feigning obedience to the Lord's enemies, feigning disobedience to the Lord, but actually he was loyal to God. But it seems as if in this chapter 27 that we looked at last week, that David had uh, what Harold Ellison describes as a fainting fit of faith. He sees the external circumstances and he, he literally freaks out. He goes, look, I can't take any more of Saul's pursuit. It is easier for me to be out with God's promised land, out with Israel and with the Philistines, and to live as a double agent there. Maybe it was no small wonder that this man had a fainting fit of faith. You know, David is not, and the Bible does not show him to be, the perfect and righteous, if you like, antithesis of Saul. It's not that Saul is all bad and David is all good, far from it. David too, like each one of us, is a sinful person. Maybe, and hopefully, like, unlike each of us, he was a man of bloodshed, 
David had no problems taking people's lives. He was impetuous and hot-headed. But the difference is that whereas Saul was concerned with his own image and his power, David, despite his many imperfections, is concerned for the Lord and his rule, his kingdom. And I believe that David made a big mistake going over to the Philistines in 27 because of a lack of a trust in God. But just before we all get the knife into David too easily for his mistakes, let's understand why this might have happened, okay? David has already shown himself to have huge amounts of trust and faith in God. He's seen all sorts of victories, deliverances, and guidances, maybe a lot more than I could say that I'll have seen in my life. But what the Lord needed to teach David is that past behavior, past obedience, past victories is no guarantee of us trusting the Lord if we trust in them, if we trust and go, well, actually, this is how things always turn out, or actually, I've got the skills, I can do this on my own. Because the Lord will teach David that some of the attractive qualities, his courage, his forthrightness, his decisiveness, maybe even his impetuosity, while it's great for slaying a Goliath, it would be completely the wrong tack to take with dealing with a Nabal. While David had great courage in the past, David, where is your courage now when you're facing the Lord's people, when you're facing much lesser men? Where did that courage come from, David? Did it come from yourself or did it come from God? Because there's always a temptation when things aren't going away for David always to slip in and become a Saul figure, to use rather than trust the Lord. You'll remember that Saul made sacrifices. He tried to inquire of the Lord. He, he, he used God for his own ends, but he didn't trust the Lord. And that is a big difference. David and his men weren't immune from this temptation. And these men who for years had been with David living in caves, they were um, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually tired. They had no settledness. They were uh, essentially nomads, not sure where they were going to be or what was going to happen, living a double life in the heart of the Philistine camp. That is going to take its toll on anybody. So we need to understand that David, the man, is under severe pressure. And while he made a mistake, yeah, absolutely, but how much more would any of us have made a lot more mistakes and probably been more like Saul than David? But yet the Lord doesn't leave David as a victim of mistakes. Instead, David's natural abilities and personality begin to be transformed and sanctified by the Lord through these external circumstances. So anyway, back to our text. We now see David with the Philistines. The Philistines are gearing up for the finale, the battle against Israel, the battle that we read about in which Saul would die. David is at the rear of the advancing column. He has found favor with this King Achish of the Philistines. But the more savvy and, and cynical Philistine generals uh, are not so impressed because they see what Achish is unable to, that David was in the perfect position to wreak havoc and gain favor again with the Israelites. And maybe some of the generals were flicking through their Philistine Spotify playlists and they find this song that unmasked David's true exploits, exploits that were an order of magnitude greater than Saul in slaying Philistines. David was most definitely a liability. But Achish doesn't see this. For some reason, Achish only sees the good in David. He finds him blameless. And he directs him back for his protection to this city where David was staying, the city of Ziklag. 
In fact, it's really ironic that the Lord isn't mentioned in chapter 27. He's not in David's lips. He's not in David's thinking that, that there's no comment on the Lord. And actually, in this chapter, David with the Philistines, it, it's kind of ironic that it's, it, it's Achish himself who mentions the Lord and describes David as an angel of God. And I like the, the, the humorous irony here where, where David complains about not being able to fight against the enemies of his Lord, the king. And I fully expect David, with courage, maybe having learnt a little bit to trust God, having made a mistake, would probably have been able to turn in the Philistines. And I wonder what would have happened. What might that have looked like? Dale Ralph Davis, a wonderful commentator whose book I, I really recommend on, on, on um, Samuel, remarks that here the deceived defends the deceiver and the relieved disputes his relief. You almost want to say, David, look, just take this gift horse and run. Don't you know, try and push it here. And it's obvious to us that David's true loyalties, loyalties, despite what had happened with Saul, actually lie with God's anointed king, with Saul, with the Israelites. Maybe David could have gone on ahead as a fifth column, would have been incredibly risky, might have lost his life. But yet, something happens here which we can't explain, and, and David is freed from a battle. He is freed up to rescue, as we see in the next chapter, this town of Ziklag. But as a flip side, what we see is that this really seals Saul's doom. There's not going to be any kerfuffle or confusion or collapse in the Philistine ranks as the David's and his mercenaries break rank at a decisive moment. That's no longer going to happen. And what we have here is what we call God's providence or, or providence. This is where God is working away in the background, directing, shaping events, people's hearts, situations for his good. These men, they thought and behaved according to their natures. They weren't forced into anything, but God was using maybe a naive trusting of Achish to bless David, to preserve him. Maybe he used the cynical savviness of the generals to also preserve David and say, look, let's get this guy out of here. But what David could not do for himself in getting out of this tricky situation, the jig was going to be up. He was going to have to declare his colors somehow. The Lord preserves him. So this is the second thread. How does David get out of real danger so that ultimately he can become the king of Israel? And then we come finally to this third thread. We've seen the first thread tied up, Saul's death, disobedience to the Lord. We've seen the second thread, David is now away from the Philistines, away from the heat of the battle, in a perfect position. Opportunity lies before him. But now this third thread, the two central characters of Samuel, David and the Lord himself, whose promises and loving kindness undergird all that has happened in his experience, even though David may not have been able to see it. Let's read chapter 30. It's a reasonably long one, but it's important, I think, to get the detail. And while we can't cover all the rich detail, as you read it, and as you read through these chapters, you'll begin to notice little echoes of other things in Samuel. Maybe some of them are, are quite funny. Some of them are quite poignant. But the writer here is really a master craftsman, a master writer, getting us to see David as the anointed king. David not taking shortcuts, not assassinating Saul, but how David's character comes to a head and is fit to be the king of Israel. First Samuel chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire 
and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and all the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this man? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, Ramoth, Negev, and Jatir, in Aror, Sifmoth, Eshtimor, Rakal, the cities of the Jeremites, and the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, Borashan, and Aphak, and Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So, while David and his men praised the deliverance of Yahweh, over the next three days, when they're rejoicing, 
they think, ah, this is it. This is the Lord's deliverance. We are now on a better foot. But they're going to come in for a big shock, a shock well described by the prophet Amos, who described a situation where somebody would free from a lion only to be met and mauled by a bear, or maybe finding rest and relief in the shelter of a house only to be bitten by a serpent. Because for David and his men, they go from the frying pan into the fire as they return to find their hometown at blaze, their people and possessions missing, presumed dead. David now has lost almost everything, including the loyalty of his men who want to stone him because of their bitterness of soul. How much more could David lose? How much lower could he be at this point in his experience? The, the Amalekites were, were an ancient people. Um, they feature in the, new, in the Old Testament as kind of these nomadic scavengers and terrorists who are constantly opposed to God's people, even as far back as the Exodus, they make an unprovoked attack. And no wonder all David's band wept till they had no strength, because the Amalekites, and I remember David in earlier chapters had actually been reading against them, see the perfect opportunity to see all these men of the Philistine army gathering at Jezreel. They see a perfect opportunity to do a little bit of damage and a little bit of plunder from both the Philistines and Judah. And so they raid these helpless and undefended towns. I wonder, did David see uh, the bitterness of this where he had, in order to keep his cover, slaughtered many people in many towns of the Amalek, Amalek, Amalekites um, in order to stop them from uh, touting on him to the Philistines. Yet, these guys don't kill anything. In fact, they take it because they want to enjoy the spoil for themselves. And, and what now, what was a good providence of the Lord becomes a really bitter providence of David because he's gone from the frying pan to the fire. And in many ways, you know, this is far more realistic in people's experience of the Christian faith of walking with the Lord than a kind of, I've had a problem, I'll pray about it, the Lord fixes it, everything's good. Because how many of us will experience bitterness after blessing, and then we get bitter again, then something happens, and then we're constantly buffeted by life circumstances. Maybe a relationship starts to founder. Maybe there are financial difficulties, personal ill health. Even in this past week alone, I have seen people that I know personally, people that I, I look after, who have just had bang, 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 bad news after bad news. And is it any wonder that people become bitter in soul? That they maybe question, Lord, what is this all about? You know, do you even exist? You know, when troubles come, and we've talked about this before in the present, it is so easy to doubt the goodness and the power of God. And that's not as such to blame us. This is because we are frail. We, we have, we have God-given limitations as human beings. We also have sin. And these things can combine to just crush us. And is it any wonder that David's men despite the fact it would do no good, talk about stoning him. They have nothing else to lash out at. They lash out at God, they lash out at David because there's nothing there for them. But this is where the turning point comes. I think this is the turning point of the whole book of Samuel because in one small phrase, we see the difference between David and Saul. We see the difference between the natural person who doesn't seek the things of God or the Spirit of God, and the spiritual person, the person whose heart has been changed, whose love for the Lord shines through despite all the mess and despite the pain of the circumstances. 
This shows us why Saul was rejected and David accepted because as it says in verse six, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David didn't just come across a verse. He didn't just find strength somewhere in, in, in some big concept of God. He didn't have some sort of, oh, well, it'll all turn out in the end. He strengthened himself. He did something that helped him to find the ability to go on from his God, not a God, not even the God, but his God, this personal connection. And this was something Saul could never have done because Saul had no relationship. He had no friendship with God. He didn't have a heart that responded to God's voice. And in fact, as we see, Saul continuously tried to silence God's voice, slaughtering priests, ignoring prophets, going to a medium. Saul was the man who was focused on natural, earthbound, human-centered thinking, feelings, and desires. And the Lord saw the hearts of these two kings of Israel, David and Saul. In Saul, he saw one who would turn away from him, and as far as we know, has suffered a lost eternity, a life of futility, a life that brought shame to the name of the Lord. But the Lord also saw into the heart of David and saw a man that, yes, was sinful, as he looks into each of our hearts and sees we are sinful, but he also sees the potential. He sees how the gifts and the way that he's created this can be changed and renewed through his spirit, through salvation, to become effective for him. But let's think, actually, how David strengthened himself, because we lose the really important teaching and learning in this whole book if we just say, ah, well, well, David clicked his fingers and it was all okay. David did not click his fingers. It was not all okay. David was going to suffer some horrendous things in the future that this would need to have prepared him for. He's going to mess up sexually. He's going to have problems with his own family. He's going to suffer the loss of an infant son. His generals are going to be doing stupid things. He's going to deal with some pretty awful things, and he's going to be on the run again. So this isn't just everything's all right with David now. David does something to remind himself of who God is. What did David do? Well, I believe David looked at his current circumstances, and he acknowledged the bitterness and the feelings and the futility of much of it. But unlike his fellows men here, he didn't just complain. He didn't just be angry with God. He poured out his complaint to the Lord. And we know that because of the Psalms written around this time and before, where David commits his way to the Lord. He knew how to complain in a godly way to the Lord. This was something I was challenged on recently where, you know, it'd be very easy to complain at work or, or in the family, but how many times do I actually bring my concerns and frustrations before the Lord? Not blaming the Lord, but yet not just venting to others and not saying, Lord, this is how I feel about this situation, and I know that I have come to the end of my resources. Can you help me? So that was the first step. But David also recalled the blessings and guidance of God. I wondered if he remember the promise that he would be king, the anointing that Samuel had given him. Did he remember the friendship of Jonathan? And it's really interesting here. Um, love, uh, Jonathan is one of my favorite characters next to Daniel because Jonathan is a far better king than Saul would have, or he would have been a far better king than Saul and arguably could have been as good or, or even better than David because Jonathan gives up his rights. 
He sees in David the Lord's anointed, and he divests himself of his authority, his robe, his ambitions in order to protect and promote David. But what Jonathan had done in many chapters ago was he had come to David, and he had strengthened David in God. But now Jonathan is soon to be dead, and whatever Jonathan had done, he had provided the means for David to strengthen himself, to be, if you like, spiritually self-sufficient in this way, because David would need it when Jonathan was gone. Maybe David saw the wisdom of Abigail, the loyalty of his men, and the faithfulness of God. And maybe he would have looked at the situation and confessed, Lord, I have messed up. I have made some poor decisions. I am a man of bloodshed, and I have lost everything, and everything is against me. But I know that I cannot any longer fear man because I need to fear you. I can see that that is the beginning of wisdom. I can see that you will rescue me, the godly man, not from my troubles, but out of my troubles, out of the depths in which I've had a hand in creating. This faithfulness that the Lord had shown David would have reminded David that you can do great things through my strength. You can slay giants, so why not apply that that you have learned before now? Whenever you are at your lowest, remember what God had done before. Might he remember the character of God, compassionate and gracious, who rescued his people, bringing them on wings like eagle. And even though David was sinful and had messed up, with God there was forgiveness. Though David was weak, his rock, the rock of Israel, was unlike any other rock. This was a rock in which you could find strength, refuge, and salvation in the Lord. And when we sang about that, that strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. What is David doing here? Well, this isn't just about David becoming fit for a king, although this is how this happened. This is about how God changes our hearts. Because what David is doing is he is being renewed. He is being transformed as his mind thinks on the Lord, as his mind thinks, if you like, what he knew of the gospel, that it is of God's grace. He cannot do anything about his sin. He cannot do anything about his past. He is alone in this situation. But with God, he is in the majority. And the bitterness that the men with him fell into could have been the bitterness that David went into. But yet, this root of bitterness was taken out of David's heart because the Lord was preparing him through these bitter providences, through bad situations, time after time. So what does he do? This is the internal thing that David has done. It's the internal thing that we all must do as Christians, if we're Christians here, when we face hardships. Because if we don't, we will be alone. We will not have the Lord to guide us. We will not know his peace and protection, even though he is there willing to give it to us. So what does he do? Well, firstly, he consults God's words, uh, this mechanism of the priestly ephod. We don't quite know what it was, but it was some way in which David was able to find God's will. And then he prays, and he comes up with a bold plan that he submits to the Lord's will to rescue his wives and the possessions. And secondly, David sees in the situation, not just an opportunity, but an opportunity to do the right thing. Because we see God's providence here again. They come across an Egyptian man, okay. Now, these Amalekites were raiders. They knew the land very well. They would have melted away into the darkness. Where would you go? Do you go north, south, east, west? Where do you go? It's a huge territory to cover. How are you going to make sure that you get these things back before they're consumed, sold off, or sold as slaves? What do you do? Well, you come across the one person that can tell you exactly the kind of, you know, the GPS of where these people are, and this was this Egyptian man. 
a discarded, sickly servant of an Amalekite master who just said, oh, you're nothing, you're sick. You're just going to hold a pound. We're just discarding you. You're just trash. Yet this was their undoing because this had happened three days ago. And God was at the same time preparing this Egyptian man's illness and the hardness of the Amalekite master's heart to discard him. At the same way, he rescues David. This three-day journey, this Egyptian man has been laying three days thinking, I'm facing certain death here. Yet God's providence brings these two situations together. And the single best help that David needed to make this all right was there. David treats him with respect and compassion and humility, the same kind of compassion and respect that Abigail showed David in bringing him uh, gifts of bread, figs, and raisins when David was going to do something stupid. David brings this to this man, and they find the Amalekites, and they slaughter them, and they rescue all that was taken. Just because the Lord had worked powerfully in our lives in the past doesn't mean David could rest in his laurels. He needed to bring his ideas before the Lord. He needed to pray. He needed to seek guidance. And he needed to see in God's timing that actually God is for him. But what else happens in David's character? Well, David's men have been divided, okay? A third were simply too weak and too burnt out to negotiate the harsh terrain of this brook. And by default, they were kind of left to look after the backpacks. Some of David's fellows made a reasonable suggestion that, well, you know, these guys, they didn't do anything. We're the ones that did the battle. We brought this spoil back. Let's not give anything to them but the bare necessities. But the Bible's verdict on this was that they were wicked and worthless. Why so? Well, let's see David's response. Let's see how God's character now, if you like, oozes from David's every pore. He calls them brothers. He tries to bring this divided people of God back into the family of God. He speaks tenderly to them. He acknowledges unlike Saul, that actually it was the Lord that had delivered them, had given the victory. He puts all of his men as recipients of God's grace. Those who battle and those who minded the bags played the same role. Maybe Paul followed this when he talked about the, the body, the church being a body, where, you know, some people uh, were, you know, not as desirable, they weren't as useful as others, but yet God um, said that, well, you are a vital part of my church. And so the people who were too exhausted by default, they looked after the bags. There wasn't much else for them to do. But yet, David shielded them from criticism, from malice, from these petty people who wanted to trust in themselves, who didn't give the glory to God and didn't realize that David is the true king. His mission wasn't just to sort of make things nice for them. His mission was to rule with compassion and, and bring together in one the people of God. Now, there's so much more that we can say, but at the end of David's story, we see a transformation to a man fit to be king of Israel versus Saul who was unfit and rejected. And David, he begins to look a lot like the Lord Jesus here in how he deals with situations, how he trusts God, how he brings hope and healing and restoration, how he is able to bring back all that is lost. This Egyptian servant is it was kind of a little bit like us, that, you know, kind of discarded by sin, our master, powerless, to die, kind of, you know, totally unworthy, but yet there is still worth in him. And David sees this and creates a mighty rescue. So the Lord Jesus, through his death on the cross, is bringing into the kingdom all sorts of people, all sorts of diversity, sinful and weak, but yet all playing a part in God's kingdom. And this is the kind of thing that David would needed to have learnt. So the Lord Jesus invites us tonight to see how spiritual reliance on the rock of Israel can help us to find our hope 
in God's King, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. David's external circumstances drew out of his heart a steadfast faith that was not seen in Saul. So how will you be strengthening yourself in God this week? As you lift your eyes to him, away from yourself, away from the horizontal external problems that you see, how will you give glory to the Father, Spirit, and Son who continue to provide and deliver and set you apart, who don't discard you because of your failures and weakness like this servant's master, but who is teaching you as your heart is bared before him to trust him more and more and to see in David the King the better king of Christ, who will never leave or forsake his people, and it gives us a hope that is sure and steadfast. We will close in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you have done so much in David's life that directly teaches us about your grace, about your character. We find, Father, in David's experience, a picture of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, as we consider our own circumstances, the things that we face. Help us to strengthen ourselves, not in our own desires, our own accomplishments, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help strength to rise in our experience as we recall your mighty deeds, as we confess our weakness to you and cast ourselves upon your mercy. I pray, Father, for everybody in this gathering who is facing difficult, unpleasant circumstances, maybe time after time, that don't seem to have any human resolution. Help them, Father, from these chapters to see that you are a God who loves them tender and compassionately. And I pray, Father, we would all entrust ourselves to your godly, your kingly, and your beautiful rule in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.